0: Welcome to the Rocksback Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And we are going to be talking today extensively about Los Angeles. Everything is L.A. related this week. We're marking the 40th anniversary of the death of the George. We're going to be hearing clips from an audio interview with the late Elliot Roberts. And we have a very special guest here today. Welcome, Chris Campion thank you, Bonnie. Who's come all the way from Pioneertown, California to join us <laughs> yeah. to talk about to talk about Southern California. How's it being back in London after 5 years?
1: A little bit of a culture shock, you know. <laughs> living in the desert for, for 5 years, pretty much You're like a
0: hermit in the desert, pretty much,
1: much sitting on top of a mountain <laughs> <laughs> surrounded by coyotes and snakes and yeah, And we have a, a
0: picture cool. on the homepage this week of you. I think it, is that at the top of Cap Rock?
1: No, it's in the middle of Joshua Tree. It's actually at the location that Graham Parsons and Keith Richards went to Joshua Tree in 1968.
0: It's not the chair that they sat in?
1: It's not the actual chair, but somebody (laughs) very kindly put another chair there just to (laughs) mark the spot.
0: So Joshua Tree, it's become such a sort of holy kind of rock site, hasn't it? Uh, Absolutely,
1: yeah. I mean, there was I think it was in the USA Today a couple of years ago. They said it was in the top ten locations for sort of music tourism you know along with abbey road and graceland and, yeah you know st- various you know hansett studios or something like that and and joshua tree because it's just got this incredible sort of mythology that I, goes along I, with I
2: gotta it. say that, that it's a long way from Bowie e3 to the joshua tree <laughs> and you wrote this piece which is a terrific piece inside grime for the observer music monthly back in 2004 and one Paragraph caught my eyes. Ten minutes from here is the Crossways estate where Dizzy Rascal grew up. But in the 70s, and by the looks of it, left to decay ever since, Crossways is one of the most impoverished council estates in London, an unforgiving residential wasteland dominated by three 25-storey high-rises known locally as three flats. The long-deserted concrete playground outside has become a graveyard for discarded crack vials. All that's left of the swings is a skeletal carcass in its chipped metal frame. This, this, made, me, write. this made me roar with laughter. I lived on the Crossways Estate oh, you did? for 15 years <sighs> between 1980 and 1995. It's not that bad.
1: I mean, I mean, maybe it just was the day that I went. I mean, I'm sure I didn't make it up, but uh,
3: <laughs> is that what <legal laughs> you're suggesting? <laughs> I can't actually. I
1: can't actually. Rem- I do. I is do have a vague memory of going there at this point. Because this, this article's what 2004 was it? 2004, yeah. And it was, you know, I was sort of moving around East London and sort of really living in that really improved by then. I mean, well, by, I'm
2: by sure that time they're they're putting a the concierge system, so there's a lot more security in the blocks. When I was there. Anyone could walk in and out. We didn't have crack bars because crack hadn't really hit the place. But you'd walk down the stairs and you'd see the tin foil with burnt tin right. foil for people smoking heroin. But you know what? They weren't pretty, they were pretty good places to live. I love the idea that dizzy rascals running around my knees sort of by the lifts. <laughs> <laughs> just, I do remember it being pretty raw looking. I mean, well, I it, it doesn't look beautiful. It's a brutalist bit of council estate yeah. building, but you know, council estates are like that. I mean, interestingly, I live now in fairly gentrified bit of West London, and we had a crack house in our street, and that was much more terrifying than anything I had in the Cross A's right? Yeah, you know, it's just because they're vertical. You know, you just think that everything is just vertically terrible. Well, if it's a street, you think this is a perfectly pleasant street without realising kind of all the horrors. I just thought yeah. I'd put that in That amused me
0: enormously. So it, how, it, do you, pr- how do you get from writing about Graham grime. Grime, to gram. grime Grime. to Graham? Grime to grime. Yes, to yes,
3: grime, yes. Yeah. How
0: do you get from grime to grime? What took the out to California in the first place? And working for some years now on what I'm sure will be the definitive biography of the infamous John Phillips how did you how did you want I mean that was
1: you know I've been going out to California for quite a long time to do pieces every now and then you know but the John Phillips book is what really took me out there I went out there and started doing interviews went out to Palm Springs which was where John spent the last seven or eight years of his life to meet his widow and his childhood friend when I started doing the book and we ended up at the Joshua Tree Inn so that was my first visit to Joshua Tree subsequent to that everything that i've worked on for the past seven or eight years while i've been working on the john phillips book i've been doing other projects and i've, I've just sort of followed these sort of little paths off you know something will catch my attention and i'll go oh, what's that that's kind of interesting and just start investigating that so i ended up finding out about this sci-fi movie that graham parsons has shot in joshua tree in 1969 yeah. which you wrote about in waiting for the sun i think maybe or, i or, have or, read him. i think i wrote about a, Hotel in a California. big graham parsons piece right it? yeah but that had only been written about... I think there was a couple of paragraphs about this thing. And I was like, well, you know, like Grand Parsons and UFOs. It was quite an odd sci-fi movie. And so I started investigating that. Spent about a year interviewing people. Found this fantastic story and all these different characters. Like Nudie Cohn were involved. Yep. Mm-hmm. Michelle Phillips. Doug Trumbull, who had done the special effects on 2001. It was just a yes. sort of fantastic thing. The movie was lost there was a bunch of photos you know that sort of deepened my relationship to the, to the area and then I would find another story to work on that sort of was adjacent to that and you know just sort of travelled on really. you but, and I but both John, John is the sort of like the lodestone you know is yeah. everything sort of came because he, he was such a fantastic character and he Knew so many different people and associated with so many different people. That
0: absolutely, I was going to say you you and I both, and Mark, I think as well. We're very interested in weird scenes inside the gold mine of Los Angeles and Southern California generally, aren't we? And and in a way, it doesn't get any weirder or darker than in the life and music of John Phillips, especially considering you know he wrote the kind of siren song that brought so many people to California. California dreaming was kind of like the invitation. It to, still is to come you know. west, wasn't Didn't it? Didn't he write that in New York?
2: As yeah, a, well, it it was the, is, that was yeah. the whole Precies. point. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. an amazing. All the leaves are brown. An,
1: it's an amazing story. It's, it's him and Michelle were living in New York in the Albert Hotel, either the Albert or the Earl Hotel, and they were in a folk group at the time. And Michelle was sort of running off to have affairs with other people. I think she'd come back to New York, and it was the first time she'd ever seen snow. So they went out walking one day, and I think that night. John was hopped up on speed or whatever it was, and he just started coming out with this song. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's the story of the walk that they did through New York that yeah. day. And it's quite an extraordinary thing for a song yeah, yeah. that conjures up all these ideas of the sort of bucolic yeah. you know, yeah. California paradise to be really about New York yeah. and about dream. I mean, literally, dreaming, about dreaming of, of, of going California. To California. And it was yeah. Michelle dreaming of California, yeah, yeah. basically.
2: Well, um recently we put up that interview with Lou Adler, and he talked about auditioning them and members coming in and just opening their mouths and him being absolutely kind of dumbstruck by the noise that the
1: mamas and papas made. He says that, but I mean... I've, I've been, <laughs> he says that, but I've heard people say that he wasn't sure about them until Bones Howe... He he asked, basically Bones Howe was yeah. in the studio, he was the, the engineer, engineer at yeah. Weston and also was the producer of the Turtles and the dimension at various times and so apparently Lou turned to Bones and said what do you think and Bones (laughs) said if you don't sign them I will and so (laughs) Lou being quite a competitive fellow decided that it was probably a good idea to sign them
0: and they were absolutely huge the Mamas and the Papas weren't they I mean they were part of what put Los Angeles on the map as a kind of pop capital in the 60s and yet the story turns so sour and macabre and we're right now in the summer of 2019 and of course Manson's in the air you're sitting here with this new book Chaos by Tom O'Neill which purports to be the sort of definitive Manson book and Tarantino's new film is coming out so how Chris did John Phillips in particular get from California Dreaming and the kind of golden innocence of that to being suspected by Roman Polanski of possibly having carried out these murders. I mean, what happens in, in those, in those just three years? Three, four years?
1: I mean, I think they were all enjoying their lives a little bit too much. <laughs> very
0: succinctly <laughs>
1: put. So it's as simple
0: as that, really.
1: I mean, there was just a sort of derangement of the senses by everybody, yeah. you know, I don't know whether there's an argument to be made that they were all in such an altered state that they let the wolves come in the door or yeah. something, yeah. but I mean, that kind of was what happened, you know, their defences were all down, sure. and to be to be fair, you know, Manson, John Phillips was one of the only people who really was just, I don't really want to, you know, Terry Melcher was approaching him and saying, do you want to record yeah, Manson, yeah. And he was like, I don't really yeah. like the sound of this. We, we
2: posted an audio interview with Neil Young a couple of weeks ago, actually, very recently. And he talks about meeting Manson right. and being very impressed by him as, right. a, as a songwriter, as a singer. He said he could play the same song four different times and with completely different words each time. That He was actually... Manson had a sort of touch of musical genius, but Neil Young said that his, his, his hair stood up in the back of his neck and he just didn't want to be around the right. guy at all.
1: I mean, I would argue that his musical genius was on the level of Jandek, if you get the reference. I mean, it was, you know, it's very raw, sort of outsider. Try outside the raw. And, yeah. and it's great. And that's the, you know, if you're listening to Manson, the, the Lie album, then that's the, the beauty of it, if, mm. if, if you want to say that. But it is very creepy. And, and you know, the idea that the Beach Boys would promote him as the new signing to the label and and apparently did record an album. I've heard from somebody that there, there is a tape in the studio somewhere that's got Manson's name on it that the Beach Boys produced and Dennis Wilson and Melcher worked on, so they notoriously more or less stole one of Manson's songs didn't they, they... Dennis Wilson yeah he yeah. just put his name on it <laughs> yeah yeah. No, I mean, you know probably not a good idea if you've got the homicidal maniacs well, in so in It ended house. up as,
0: uh, what Never Learn Not to Love yeah and it was Cease to Exist originally Cease to exist which is a much better season. title obviously. it's a great song <laughs> Actually, I mean the way the Beach Boys did it it was brilliant
3: Cease to exist
0: So the three pieces that we've selected by you includes this epic piece you wrote about John Phillips for the Observer Music Monthly in the spring of 2009 and you inevitably this is like a book proposal, you you follow <laughs> the story through into the 70s and, and just how you talk about derangement of the senses just how incredibly fucked up John Phillips was and just an insane drug fiend and he ends up Sabotaging the biggest break of his kind of solo career when he's working not far from here. Funny enough, I went to see them. I went yeah, to the see Islands, the, the yeah. movies at the Olympic Cinema on Friday night. So probably about three miles from here, he's working with Keith Richards. They're mm-hmm. both absolutely, completely fucked up on heroin, mm-hmm. and this album only comes out years later, doesn't it? I after, actually listened to it. This morning. I mean, it, it's very, it, in places, It's very Stonesy. Jagger's singing here and there. Keith's playing some Pretty cool kind of Keith Licks, but I mean, it's, it's got, not a great album.
1: I don't know, man. I'd argue against that. Okay. I, mean, I think it's a it's great better album. Than I think you it's might a great, think, isn't it? It's a great album. Look, he had it was John Phillips with the Stones as his backing band. The only I mean, Charlie wasn't on it, but Ronnie was on it. Mick Taylor was on it. Yeah, is that the album Mick's we were listening to yesterday? No, we were
0: actually listening to something else and agreeing that you know Phillips was not a great singer, sort of wannabe <laughs> Graham in a way. I mean, I think both he and Terry Melcher both sort of very deeply aspired to sort of being Graham Parsons in a way.
1: They were very, very smitten with Graham. Yeah, I mean, I was going to mention the, Keith. the Terry Melcher album's fantastic. You know, I mean, that's one of my favourite albums. Would
0: you really make that <laughs> argument? Yeah, I love it. You I do you really that. like it. Okay. Yeah, I think it's not it's as good as
1: GP, though. No, but, you know, a, <laughs> anyway. great, you know, it depends where you're going to rate them. But look, it is such, it's just
0: such but, an but, extraordinary story. But, yeah,
1: he, he, so basically, John, at that point, he's recording with the Stones. I think Armor Ertigan's given him a, this mm. incredible record deal, and Mick and Keith are producing, mm. and it just all goes exactly where you think it will go. Yeah. You know, Keith actually had just been busted in Toronto oh, while yeah. they are recording that record. They started off in London, and then they moved to New York, and then Keith gets busted and although the official history is that he was clean and he'd sort of sorted himself out, that's not, you know, what I've heard. <laughs> you know, I think he was having his last hurrah before well, facing he the, the music. Well, you talk the engineer,
0: and, it's this, and he says, you know, every time either of them went into the bathroom, and then paid, <laughs> we, we thought they wouldn't come out. You know, we'd find them dead in there. I mean... But you go through it, so many extraordinary. Things. I'm sure your book is going to go in such detail, about The man who falls to Earth is involved with. There's the space musical that was a disaster in New York, and then he ends up on Mystique singing with Princess Margaret. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> such a. It's got to be a yeah. movie, hasn't it? When you <laughs> have you optioned the rights? Yet, yeah, but um, you know.
1: And then Genevieve
0: uh, Waite as well. I mean, that that album's very recently. Yeah, and then
1: Genevieve Waite is one of this. It's just an extraordinary sort of record, forties Fantasia big band, yeah. record romance slash on the disco. Yeah. You know, in the disco era. Meet Mister
3: Blue, Jew, of New York City.
1: John basically decided he wanted to make her into a star. Wrote all these amazing songs for her, and she co-wrote a few of them, and you know, the one problem was that Genevieve couldn't sing. So, <laughs> but Genevieve had the most amazing voice, which has been described as Betty Boot meets Billie Holiday. Yeah. You know, yeah. M- most memorably. I think. Yes. And I've heard tapes. I've actually heard the raw tapes, 45 takes, one syllable at a time. As, oh, really? As he, you know, basically trained her to, you know, sing the songs. And she obviously got it in the end. There's a few points on the album where she's like, so far off, she's yeah. never going to get back on track again. Yeah. But but it's a beautiful record, and it's and it you know, a lot of the time with John Phillips, the business side of things just sort of you know destroyed any ambitions he had, and and the and the, all of these great projects. Unlike a lot of his peers he was never on a record label for you know more than a few years he didn't have say you know Dylan's relationship with Columbia or mm. or Neil Young's relationship with Reprise he didn't have a manager mm. you know he was doing it all himself mm. it's an amazing thing to think about at that time one of those artists you know they all had managers they all had record labels yeah. and he was really going out there and sort of trying to do it all in his own and sort of getting in bed with sort of dodgy businessmen and, and people who mm. didn't necessarily have his best interests at heart, and and that's what makes it interesting in some ways, his sort of perilous path that yeah. he negotiated through popular culture, meeting all these amazing people. I mean, he hung out with John Paul Gay Jr., mm. he hung out with Robert Kennedy Jr., he hung out with sure. Peter Lawford, I mean, there's yeah, endless yeah. amounts of it, and it, I think, you know, a lot of the time, because of the, the dynamism of his personality, he, he was able to you know, move into all these worlds that other people wouldn't necessarily have been able to. So definitely you know, I'm, I'm reminded
0: of a launch I had with the late, great, absolutely delightful man, David Anderley, who is a Beach Boys acolyte and also worked at Electra. Mm-hmm. I remember him saying to me, you know, all these people, you know, the Grahams, the Arthur Lees, the John Phillipses, the Neil Youngs, mm-hmm. you know, even the Phil Spectors, they they're all quite, quite dark and quite sort of haunted souls i can't remember the exact expression he used and um, that leads me to the next piece of yours which is which is an interview you did with arthur lee in 2002 so not long before yeah like seven years before the john phillips piece i mean arthur lee forever changes some people would say it's like a sort of harbinger of the darkness that was about to sort of unfold with manson etc mm-hmm. we'd probably agree it's one of the Great records ever to come out of Los Angeles. Yeah, how do you how, how did you find Arthur?
1: <laughs> well, he insisted on running, I think, maybe at least one, possibly two tape recorders while we were talking. So, you know, he wanted his own version of whatever we were talking about. I think he had someone filming it and a tape recorder. I don't think he was long out of prison at that No. You know, at that no, when you say
0: he wasn't long out of prison. Um, mm.
1: And he was not long out of prison, and then suddenly his career had just sort of taken off again because yeah. I think that was... I think it was the trip that he made to London to perform at the Royal Festival Hall or the Queen Elizabeth Hall or whichever one it was. You know, he was a prickly character. You've met him. But you met him probably not at his best. He'd already I think had as four Mary's
0: when I sat down with yeah, him. i heard horror stories <laughs> about that That's the one where he basically says that he and Jimi Hendrix had a sexual relationship. He claims that Jimmy came on to him yeah. in, a, in a threesome. He's in bed with Jimmy and a girl and Jimmy started coming on to him. I mean, he it, it was almost convincing I didn't really know it seemed unlikely but in the in hey the spirit of the times anything could happen in Los Angeles right
1: right um but yeah, he was a he was a prickly character. But he, again, he's like he's another one of these characters that just sort of wandered through. Personally, I love Forever Changes, but I love the records that came afterwards. I think Four Sales a fantastic record. <laughs> we're, no, we're, but I mean, they're, that's yeah. an amazing yeah. band. We're, we're, like if you see the footage uh, of them on, you know, there's some. Uh, Dutch I f- footage. I first read
2: about um, Zigzag magazine. They were the first people to really sort talk about them in this country. They and were well. obsessed getting... with Arthur I, Lee. and then talked about this notorious interview. Where this woman journalist is basically kind of trapped in the mansion up in the Hollywood Hills. The castle. Uh, yeah. And we've got that interview because she's mm. one of our writers, Rochelle Reed. Mm. We got it from KRLA Beat, and she mm. writes it up. She's trying to be as polite as possible about a mm. really unpleasant experience. Yeah. And this is like '67, something like that, so you know, two years before Charlie Manson's made his appearance. It's, it's got there that
0: was something creepy, weird there was vibe. was something creepy about love, there's no doubt about it. And they flirted with the dark side. And there are moments on "Forever Changes" that are kind of chilling, chillingly right. beautiful. Well, I mean, I love that, that you know
1: the snot has caked against my pants. Yeah. It's one of the greatest opening lines of it. <laughs> the any red song telephone has
0: been <laughs> one of the sort of scariest LA songs that, I, that that I can think of. Yeah,
1: I mean, I remember him. There was one thing where he was talking in the interview about sitting on a hill. Yeah. Oh, it was sitting
0: on it, a hill,
1: watching side, all the people side, die. You know.
3: Yeah. Sitting on a hill. Side. Watching all the people die. i feel much better on the other
0: side.
1: He really didn't think that he was gonna last very long, no. I think. And he, and he and he felt this sense of you know, just this dread Yes coming down the canyons, I guess. You know, and that's that, that you know it was definitely a precursor of what was going on at the time. You know, you also, you have to remember, I did a lot of research into Monterey Pop while I was doing the John Phillips of book. Course. and wrote this long chapter about it. And the whole idea of the Summer of Love as this wonderful season of goodwill. well-being and goodwill yes. is absolute rubbish, <laughs> <Yeah>. because <laughs> San Francisco was a nightmare at the time. There was speed. Yeah. There was the Wild There west. was, like, Hell's Angels. Yeah. There was, you well, know... Well, I mean, a, the hippies themselves... Uh, held
2: the funeral for the hippie in the middle of the summer of life. Right. And with except for the airplane who kept their house just off 8th Street, everyone else was bailing out. If they could, if they could move out to Nevarto, if they could move out to Marin County, yeah. they were getting out because San Francisco itself was becoming a hellhole.
1: Yeah, I mean, you read, if you read Joan Didion snatching towards yeah. Bethlehem, she mm-hmm. captures that because yeah. she was there at that time. Yeah. And, and yeah. she really does report, and she talks about the kids as, like, just really having no clue what they were doing. Well, of
2: course, Ch- Charlie Manson had just come out of jail. He ended up and on hay Ashbury. That, uh, that was
1: his... Before he went reading down to LA, yeah. that's where he was. Um, but, but this is where
2: he developed his whole shtick and started kind of recruiting people and sort of doing his, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Right? I mean,
1: Monterey Monterey itself was actually the only event that personified the summer of love because mm-hmm. you it was downhill famous- all the way
0: after that, really. Well, wasn't it? But also, <laughs> f-
1: famously, you know, I mean, the Monterey, the city of Monterey were just petrified of. The fact that they had a venue which really held, I think, six or 8,000 people. Yes, very small. Very, very Mm -hmm. small. And if you go there, I went there, I went to the The Monterey showgrounds. And and I was just like, wow, this is like, you know, I'd seen the film and everything, and you just don't realize how small it is, Mm -hmm. you know. And they were petrified of like 300,000 kids coming down there and swamping the town by, you know, doubling the population, tripling the population. And the Hells Angels were coming down because the dead wanted the Hells Angels there. And remarkably, there was not one single arrest that that weekend. So, you know, in some ways, John Phillips and Lou Adler pulled it off, pulled off the impossible, managed to create an event that was peace, love and flowers and music. And... You know, you look at what happened at the other festivals. We're in the 50th yeah. anniversary of Woodstock, which was just absolutely shambolic and a nightmare. And then Altamont, which was exactly the same. Sure. Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah. It, let's fast forward to Devendra Banhol, only in the sense okay. that it interests me that the what happens in California, particularly in the late 60s and the early 70s, has become such a sort of lodestone, such a reference point for so many so many like bands, so much pop culture stuff going on in cinema. And it's like, some people want to go back to that time. They want mm-hmm. to go back and somehow kind of live in Laurel Canyon in 1969 or whatever the hell it is. Devendra Banhart, who you interviewed, I think probably in Topanga Canyon, mm-hmm. where was living, exemplified that. So this is 2007. This interview right. with him and his album was just, come out called Smokey Rolls Down Thunder Canyon did you just my question really be did it feel like just very sort of retro and very yeah, just too referencing of that time or did did you feel that people like Bernhardt you also mentioned John and Newsom and other people like did you feel he was doing something convincingly new with his reference
1: points I mean I wasn't particularly convinced by him I, no. before I met him or after I said <laughs> <so, laughs> about but him. I was gonna say I mean yeah. there, there is something a, a, a little like that and like a guru well so I mean he time. like I remember he had he was very much wanted to you know draw me in and was kind of very <laughs> you know <laughs> well maybe I don't know but I mean we went I remember we went into the bedroom and his guru the photo of his guru was on the wall, you know, I mean, because he'd grown up in a religious cult, and, you know, was still, you know, was still, I think it was the same guru, it was like an Indian guru, I can't remember the name, I might have mentioned it in the piece. You do. So... Yeah, there was that sort of vibe there, and I was never really that convinced by him. I mean, he's still making music, and mm. but you know, I guess that that whole era—when was this in the? Was it late '90s when he started coming out? And uh, yes, was it a I little mean, bit uh, later on.
0: I I, I can't Maybe remember. Was when he, started, 2000s, no, he was but, making music in the late '90s, for but sure. But a lot
1: of that, a lot of that sort of generation of new singer-songwriters yeah. were obviously drawing from. The Laurel Canyon era, you know, whether you talk, um, talking about, you know, Joanna or Entrance, Guy Blakesley's like Entrance and and Devendra Banhart were sort of matched quite a lot at that time. And I I was a much more a fan of Guy because he just seemed a lot grittier and, and, Mm -hmm. you know a lot more talented as a okay. songwriter and he and, and still is because he brought out an album a couple of years ago that was just phenomenal what but, your so, piece reminded
0: me of was was that he had recently started being managed by Elliot Roberts right Neil Young's long time manager and Joni Mitchell's original manager and I and think
1: he's still on Reprise, but or he was he at the may time, well be he yeah may he was, well be. so he was really definitely you know there was a conscious attempt to sort of mold him in that sort of Neil Young kind of image you know
0: absolutely i think elliot and Topanga canyon
1: where neil was living i think that's right so
0: so it everything was sort of coming around again wasn't it so we've just lost elliot roberts who was sort of david geffen's partner in that management stable on asylum records and they really sort of sewed up that that kind of West Coast scene in the early seventies, and I interviewed Elliot in nineteen ninety three, and we're going to hear a clip from that interview where he talks. Well, he,
2: he talks about how the scene and the canyons, and specifically Joni Mitchell's house, where everyone would march into through her house to swap guitars. Yeah.
3: That's what you did with your nights, you know, you go yes. around to different clubs or sessions and everyone was always welcomed at every session. Yeah. And, you know, we would be at Joni's house mm. six nights a week from yeah. two to about five in the morning. Yeah. It would be Jackson and Tim Harden and Leonard Cohen and Judy Collins okay. and every folkie in town every night. Yes. would come by and we'd do the clubs and then, you know, we'd stop at Jones for a drink and then everyone started passing guitars around and it was really like that. Yes. Exactly. and you know now you know yeah it's just not like that unfortunately it's a lot more competitive for the, i guess for the buck it's just, the bigger business. It's just a whole other scene yeah, yeah. And it really is a- they paved paradise put up a parking lot with a pink hotel a boutique and a swinging hot spot Don't
0: yeah so elliot comes to los angeles with Joan, as he calls her. Yes. Uh, I, I, I like that. Yeah. Joan. It's always Joan. Um, of course, it's actually her real name. And that's sort of the original, that's the kind of birth of that scene, yeah. really. He's, he's,
2: he, he's very interesting. That essentially, they they meet David Crosby and David Crosby just left the birds. But everything kind of revolved around David Crosby. He was mm-hmm. the great scene star. And David Crosby then is going to produce Jonah's first album. Mm-hmm. And they in the studio, in the studio next door, Buffalo Springfield, Joni Mitchell says, you've got to come and meet Neil, the old buddies from Toronto. And it just, everything sort of... You know, unfolds it, from it Unfolds there. from there, and this interview is fascinating. Hey, he also talks, this, this is a really great bit about, he really wants to manage Buffalo Springfield, and he goes along to the rehearsal room, and basically Neil Young tells him to fuck off, you know. We don't want to work with you, get out. He was living with Neil at the time. He packs his bags find somewhere else to stay and like two weeks later Neil's knocking on his door saying manage me man. He says what do you mean? You know, you just told me I didn't want you to manage the band I want you to manage me. Uh, <laughs> He's a Machiavellian motherfucker <laughs> that Neil Young is But
0: it's a fantastic moment in this very very interesting interview. He managed Neil pretty much, to his dying day. That, that, I mean, at least kind of normally he was still yeah. Neil's manager yeah. as of, like, last Saturday. Yeah. I
2: mean, he's, he's very nice about David Geffen, who generally is less nice about him in return, from what, I've, from what I understand. And he says, you know, he's saying in this interview, oh, we know, we're still good friends, but he understood that David was... And we'll, we'll talk about David a little bit later as well, but that Geffen was fiercely ambitious. He really wanted to run Warner Brothers and when he couldn't do that he set up a silent
0: Gavin Roberts was was a great double act in that Geffen just had a sort of fearsome business mm-hmm. brain. I mean, he could just out think mm-hmm. and out-maneuver anybody, whereas Elliot was more the people person. Mm-hmm. And that's what so many people told me. It's like, Geffen would be on the phone to arm at Earth again mm-hmm. at, like, midnight. And by then, Elliot had already driven around every one of his artists in the canyon just to smoke a joint and see how they were doing <laughs> and how the new songs were coming along. And uh, so it was a really yeah. good kind of symbiosis. He, he also kind of, I mean, his passion is songwriters,
2: actually almost more than anything else, songwriters. But then he becomes aware that the scene is changing, and particularly in terms of the Eagles. In fact, let's play this clip of him talking about the Eagles and about how the way they wrote songs was for the intention of having hit records rather than just writing great songs.
0: Could you have foreseen... That they would go from like yeah. around the troubadour in sixty nine to something else The Eagles beacon. are different. Right. Because they were we, s- we did know. They crossed into pop. But yes, they, were they always
3: gonna do yes, that? Yes, they were made to do that. Right. That, that's, that's different. Okay. I mean, they were Linda Reinstad's band. Yes. They were a unit that David and I knew real well. Bernie put the put them for the most part together. Right. It wasn't Don and Glenn, right, it was sure. more Bernie. Yes. And uh but uh
0: did they know they always wanted to be huge?
3: Um, yes, because that's what they wrote for right. They wrote to be I mean they were different kinds of songwriters right You'd sit in a room with Don Glenn and JD Souther and they'd come up with three songs mm. the, you know they're Neil like or kind of Joan go anyway. you know right. you'll be talking to them and you'll realize they're writing yeah. or you know you can't say on Monday right. I need a song by Wednesday right. you, you can with the Eagles. As soon as Dude. you
0: stop interrupting, <laughs> 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 yeah. so that, that brings back the memories of Elliot's kids by second marriage.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. the, interesting, <laughs> the interesting thing about that is, well, I didn't know that Bernie Leadon was the one who put the, yeah, the yeah. Eagles together, but obviously that relates back to Graham and the Flying Burrito yeah, so Brothers, very, obviously. Very much. Was so.
0: At whose knees, essentially, the Eagles learned, you know? Yeah. Right. And in a way, they they learn what not to do. I mean, you know, Don and Don Henley and uh, Glenn Fry would go and watch. The burritos, and then watch Graham Solo, and we're completely inspired by what he was doing mm-hmm. with country rock. But they also saw how untogether he was, right. how hedonistic he was, yeah. and they were like, "We're going to do this properly. We're going to write hit records. We want hit records." And Graham wasn't interested in hit records. Right. The Eagles thought we we actually could have hits with the with these songs, but it's still an incredible stretch to think about these just these sort of you know these long haired guys hanging around denim jeans in the troubadour. Th- these guys were going to become the biggest band in yeah, America. Yeah, uh, it,
2: it's got to remember that actually Linda Ronstadt broke through First, of, mm-hmm. in terms of really big selling, sure, and they were heavily associated with her, so they're obviously watching that as well. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. Having been her backing Very hand. good point, anyway. We're we going to play another clip at the end of the show, but it's a really, really interesting interview. And you know, here we are in Los Angeles for the day, you know, <laughs> exactly.
0: And I think, you know, I mean, Neil came out after Elliot died the other day and said, you know, he was the greatest manager that ever was. And you know, what I'll remember is this guy who sort of when he came to LA, he looked like kind of Woody Allen, he was just he was just. This, this this guy growing up in the Bronx, Elliot Rabinovitz, you know, and he comes to <laughs> he comes to California, and the guy I met was this sort of completely sort of Zen, yeah. suntanned, yeah. like long-haired California yeah, dude. S- you, you say know.
2: that, but if you don't see him, you listen to the tape. He is still the guy from the Bronx. Of course. Can't, you can't take the guy out of the Bronx. He's still got that sort of psych, yeah. energy and that mm-hmm. sort of New York twang and everything like that. You know, so if you can't see his tan, if you can't see his long hair, you, you're listening to a guy out of the Bronx. It's
0: great. But I mean, you know, without him, you know, Johnny wouldn't have signed to reprise. Neil wouldn't have signed to reprise. Crosby still's National yeah, Young yeah, probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah. The Eagles might not have happened. Geffen might not have come to LA. You know, it's so... It, We've lost a very important yeah. and beloved character. You know, definitely, as you yeah. say, much more much more loved than Geffen. I who think, will is it? Who
2: we'll get on to. Who in, will get in, on in, to in, it a little in, in, bit. In,
0: in, so from there, we're just going to sidestep into into Lowell George, who was also on Warner Brothers and part of that stable to some extent. But 40 years since Lowell died, you and I, we're massive Little Feet fans. Huge. I saw them in Sony. Five at the Rainbow I will, I will envy you for that forever that's fine by me you know I, I live to be envied but I did <laughs> go January 75 to the Rainbow and me and my little buddies we had fallen in love with Little Feet and you know the story is that the headline that was the Doobie Brothers and already by this point the Doobie Brothers were just not cool so everybody went to all the entire pub rock community in London went to see Little Feet because Lowell was like God mm. and then the moment the Doobies came out half oh, the crowd walked out. And I bet Elvis Costello was one of them. But they were <laughs> fabulous. They yeah. were sort of unique because they were the opposite of yeah. like the Eagles. They drew on yeah. so many different influences. Hard Chicago blues, funk. N- so the fun- New Orleans RB. New Orleans Well, so so the first piece we've got is 73 and it's and it's David Ranson of Crawdaddy talking right. to LOL just after Dixie Chickens come Which is which is when those two guys had
2: joined the band, the bass pl- Sam Clayton, um and Kenny, Gradley, Kenny Gradley, yeah And The whole band sort of shifted gear in terms of rhythmic centre and so on. So yes. It's funny, I mean, I don't think they ever made a single really great album with the possible exception of Sailing Shoes. Mm. There were too many disparate forces in that band. They tend to pull in too many different directions to really, like, make the
0: great album that that I think they were capable of. But a Greatest Sets album is one of the greatest records ever made. Fantastic. I mean, we've actually put, uh, put together a playlist for Spotify, and I would say that there are kind of 20 songs there that that put Lowell, you know, in the very elite. I I also
2: also really liked his solo album, which got very bad press at the time. We got a bunch of reviews on the site of Thanks, I'll Eat It Here... All of which were expressing some huge disappointment that it wasn't the great Lowell George Siller album, But actually it's a pretty damn good record. It's still
0: a good record. Um isn't
2: it? there's something really sweet about Lowell as well. I mean yes. you know, in nineteen seventy seven when they played here, not good shows by a number of accounts. Well the
0: second piece is by Max Bell and NME and it and it is very, very candid about the unhappiness yeah, in the Yeah, That's from seventy seven, yeah. That Lowell has already yeah. essentially yeah. stepped outside yeah. of the camp. You saw an interesting incident on
2: stage. Well, I know, as Max Max says, and he
0: says in the piece, and he's only going by what he can kind of deduce from looking at Lowell's lips, that Billy Payne, the sometimes reviled keyboard (laughs) player, (laughs) who really wanted to be Joe Zauer. Yeah, yeah. So on Dixie Chicken, on the Hammersmith Odeon stage, he starts playing a solo, and a, a Max thinks that Lowell wanders over and says, play some fucking rock and roll, for Christ's sakes. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise you uh, yeah, Well, a, f- a,
2: a friend of mine was working at the Hard Rock Cafe at the time, and on uh, one of those nights late, the whole band had come to the Hard Rock Cafe for American food, you know. And apparently Lowell is standing out the street weeping, saying, this is all shit, I can't stand this anymore. Yeah you know 77 he did not even he was what a year away from leaving the band was he 70 um
0: he yeah well so 78 79 i mean the the solo album comes out in 79 and the last piece we have mm -hmm. is the last interview he ever gave in boston jim sullivan and his friend dean johnson interview Lowell for a little kind of local rag called sweet potato Yeah, yeah and you know it's it's just extraordinary mm. to, to to read, and two like two weeks later, he's dead. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm afraid it's sort of basically with the cocaine and his past. Cocaine and and being massively overweight; yeah. which, those two things don't normally go hand in hand. But in, <laughs> but in Lowell's case, for some reason, they did. Whether he was drinking a lot as well, yeah, yeah. I suspect he probably was. I think Remy Martin was his mm. triple of choice. I mean, are,
1: are, which are takes you, us back to John Phillips, but well, he wasn't overweight. But well, <laughs> well, well, well. Absolutely, like his cocaine. I, mean,
0: I think. The thing that these guys have in common is that they were, they weren't just sort of cool rock stars. They were really quite interesting, eclectic, thoughtful people. However mm. fucked up they were, I mean, mm. Law was a, was a really interesting, like Bohemian kid in yep. Hollywood High School. Everybody says, I mean, Law was just so different. Mm. And I think you'd probably say the same of John Phillips. You'd say the same of Arthur Lee. They all had brains, right? And I don't know whether Law ever had anything to do with with John Phillips. Little Feet. I mean anything to you? Not
1: really. Not really. I think you should, be, be, I think you should I, do some, some investigation I will, there. I will, absolutely. I, really I, think so. I do
0: think they were one of the great West Coast bands. I think anyone who really loved blues, soul, funk in LA who wanted something different from the sort of soft or yacht rock elite <laughs> gravitated to Little Feet and I think it was one of the great heartbreaks for Warner Reprise that Little Feet didn't become mm-hmm. the huge kind of American Stones almost that, yep. that right. they should have been mm-hmm. in many ways. But
2: you know I mean this is a problem if you have a band where in fact it was one guy who really writes good songs uh, but there are three other guys who think they can write songs and had to be accommodated mm-hmm. which is why yeah. none of their albums are completely
0: And good. Lowell probably wasn't strong enough At- to Stand up to them and say, Do you know what? Essentially, this is my band. There's
2: also this notion of band being democracy. Now, bands aren't democracies, bands never can be democracies. No, yeah, little feet attempted to be democratic, and it was a disaster for them.
0: So, we can go from here back. To David Geffen, can't we? No, well, uh, we're going to go through
2: what's new in the library. Well, no, we're going to go back further than that. First, so we're going to start off in '64. There's a piece on rave on the Stones where they basically talk to all the people around the Stones, and you know, the Stones were just making it. They had the second hit. And I get Keith's mother, and she's just brilliant. She says, like, you know, it cost me about a pound a day to keep Keith going, and of course I never got a penny back. I sent Keith cash whenever I could, and food parcels too, because I knew the money would just go on cigarettes instead of a good solid meal. That is um, hysterical. The shirts they used to send me to wash for them looked as though they'd been buried for a fortnight. I just love this, because, I mean, I don't think I've ever read her quoted anywhere else. Well, I is- love the idea that in uh,
0: 1964, the money would just go on cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's uh, what he was telling his mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a jazz cigarettes. So a yeah, you know. jazz, jazz wood <laughs> bomb, yeah. 66 yeah. record mirror, Rich Green interviews Rick Gunnell. Garnold. Rick Gunnell's a really fascinating person. Here in mean, Georgie Gomelsky with the management slash promoter figures behind the British Blues boom, essentially. This is very much about Georgie Fame, who's his big star at the moment. But in 66, he's already managing John Mayle, for example. Yeah. He's, he gets a mixed press these days that, you know, he was a difficult businessman he ripped people off and all that but i mean he he ran a flamingo you know the, the, without people like rick gunnell the british blues boom probably would never have got led well without
0: gangsters there would be no <laughs> music scene anywhere ever <laughs> would there really
2: Abs- absolutely jimmy hendrix the bag O' nails january 67 and this is really about all the people this is quite an important gig the Blazers and bag O' nails shows were the ones where jimmy hendrix really blew London away, where suddenly, as it says here, Bill Wyman, Paul McCartney, Donovan, Keith Moon, Brian Epstein, Viv Prince, Tony Booth, Georgie Fame, Twiggy, Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, Lisa Minnelli were all there at the bag of nails to see Jimi Hendrix experience, which sort of gives you an idea of the impact this guy had just had. He'd only been in the country, in, what, three months by that point? It's one of my, I mean, if I can just...
1: Interjectively, mm-hmm. one of my of very favourite pieces that I've worked on over the past few years was to interview one of Jimi Hendrix's girlfriends, who was sort of had been long forgotten. Which one? She was called Lithophane Priggen. Oh, I remember oh, that piece. Yes, yes. She, I do. Uh, you, you know, uh, she told is me, she an Dolly
2: awful... Dagger. No, that's no, no Dagger She's
1: she. I realised while I was working on the piece that she's a Foxy Lady, and right. there's, you know, there's no independent evidence to prove that, but the things that she was telling me married so perfectly mm-hmm. with the lyrics, but. Little of fame, grew up in the deep south in the in the 40s, went to New York, Harlem with Little Willie John, who was her first kind of major boyfriend. Okay. Met Sam Cooke, became a lover of Sam Cooke. Eventually met Jimi Hendrix at an orgy in New York. <laughs> as you do. We met as an orgy. And... Uh, from 1962 1963 she was associated with Hendrix all the way through to nineteen seventy. Right, so but way the before than
0: the, the, the girls we know about. Yeah, yeah.
1: And she, and and she's, you know, currently, I would say she's the per, she's the only person left alive who knows Jimmy, you know, as well, you know. But she knows she knew Jimmy better than anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, Billy Cox is still alive, but I mean, I think Lythofane, you know, just had this very, you know. Um, intense, intimate relationship with Mm -hmm. him over the years. But, to talk about the impact of those Bag of Nails shows, Mm -hmm. you know, and from what he was coming from, Mm -hmm. because she's told me they were basically living in poverty, you know, in in Harlem. Yeah, yeah. And he'd moved down to Greenwich Village and, you know, basically met Chaz Chandler and... Then suddenly, just took off like a rocket as soon as he came to to, to the UK. It's a, but it's it's a pretty amazing story, and it, and, it, and it you know goes to back to the mamas and the papas who had a similar story, ended up in LA, yeah. you know, drove across mm. the states, absolutely mm. poverty stricken. Suddenly, yeah, like within, within six, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and six months, they're like, like the yeah.
2: biggest rock stars on to, the planet. And tied up further, it's Paul McCartney recommends to John Phillips that Jimi Hendrix play at the Monterey Pop Festival, and
0: that's yeah, how yeah. Jimi Hendrix yeah.
1: was launched in, in America. America yeah. Basically,
0: yeah. Yeah. it's such a sort of you know, small community in many ways, isn't it? Yeah. This sort of triangulation of London, New York, and yeah. Los Angeles right. was was really the sort of fomented everything
1: and i don't think that i mean weirdly although the the world has got smaller s- supposedly you know i mean i don't think those kind of things would happen in no. the same way no. no which in fact elliot
2: robertson in the interview talks about exactly that
1: about
0: everything become more fractured and more separated and so on and so forth the list of people in that piece about the mills is I mean, literally every mover and shaker and Glamour Puss in London like, is it's there it's absolutely mm. extraordinary, in January 67 yeah, they the, are all there in this one subterranean club tiny club
2: or yeah. you
1: wouldn't have you know I mean we'd love to have been well, in well, that as place we, we,
2: been we, um, when we had da- Dawn James on in your seat two or yeah. three weeks back and she talked about she wrote for Rave at that time she talked about it being as a tiny scene everyone knew everyone else you know including the journalists they were yeah. much more kind yeah, of embedded in the, right, in, in in the, the scene sir. yeah OK, we get, now we get to David Geffen, Roy Carr interview from 72. Geffen's pretty much just set up Asylum. Asylum's a pretty new yes. label in 72 very much for the expressing of of working with, with Joni and so on and so forth. He also is very involved in Crosby's National and Young, and uh, they, he's asked a lot about them because they were, at that point, still regarded as the biggest item that he owned, in the manner of speaking. And he's, it's marvellously rude. He says, Graham was very laid-back and extremely quiet, modest gentleman. Then there's Stephen, who, as you know, is not particularly modest about anything. <laughs> Basically, he, the, 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 this was the point that Neil talked about him in the audio interview before, that, you know people who will work with someone and not work with other people. David has said some very outrageous things in concert about Nixon, but I don't think Nixon cares very much. He probably doesn't know who David Crosby is. (laughs) (laughs) um, It's a very interesting interview because, I mean, you get this sense of his concentration. Mm -hmm. This is a man who's, absolutely focused on what he needs to do to get his acts across and so on and so forth. Mm. You know, there's no sentimentality in this at all. Mm. Unlike, let's say, listening to the Elliot Roberts interview, where this is a man who just loves his artists. You don't really get the feeling from David that he, he does but only insofar as there are means to some sort of greater end.
0: I think he did love some yeah. of his artists. He was genuine. You have to remember that before he came to L.A. at sort of the behest of, of Elliot Roberts, you know, come and help me, David, do these deals, because I don't know how to do deals. Mm-hmm. Geffen had already, like, musically fallen... In love with Laura Nero, well, and I mean, I, yeah, and yeah. I think had a, had a relationship with her at a time when he was still trying to kind of convince himself, or at least his mother, that he was heterosexual. <laughs> um, so he was <laughs> he was <laughs> overawed by by Laura Nero, and and, and, and who wouldn't be? I, yeah. I'm a massive Nero Anyways, fan.
2: It, it, it's it's a very interesting piece, and it's, 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 it's pure coincidence. I proofread this last week before Elliot Rob's died. We end up with them both featuring on the side. Absolutely. Ways. Moving forward to May seventy six, a reader's letter to the NME about a fracas at Sex Pistols' shirt in Nashville, and the reader happens to be Neil Tennant, future Smash Hits writer, and then Pet Shop Boy, <laughs> and it's marvellously catchy stuff. I mean, one of the lines is "One of their coterie of fag hags picks a fight with the girl next next to her." I mean, coterie of fag hags. You know, <laughs> wow. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Probably from Neil. So it's so it's, it's basically enemy reprinted this letter I think it must have caught someone's eye because within about a year he was on the sort of founding team on sort of smash hits or so anyway it's it's great Melody Maker 78 Ian Butch interview with Talking Heads they'd just worked with Eno for the first time. Chris yeah,
0: Fratton, more, more, songs, more songs about bullies and food, food was the first one he did. In
2: Butch says Eno be the first person to admit that he's not a virtuoso in the sense that he plays a really boss guitar or mean piano. I just love the idea of him using the term boss guitar or mean piano adjacent to Eno in the paragraph. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really go with um, Brian Eno, does it? Yeah. I think also think we never feared like some people in record company did, that we were going to be eno <laughs> <laughs> and there's a nice line from Dave Byrne saying it could seem con- very contrived, but I think that's the way people are now. The days of naive, primitive rock bands are gone. Mm. Well, that they, they they keep coming back, don't they? Mm. <laughs> been 1988, Holly Gleeson talking to Merle Haggard, the great Merle Haggard, and he's a couple of great things here. He says, the Bakersfield sound never was as country as the Nashville sound. It's always been rockabilly. That's what it is. Which is actually a fair point that the Bakersfield sound is very much a kind of amped up bar band version of country. And he says, talking about uh, Oki from Muskogee and the notoriety that surrounded that song, he says, I didn't give a shit how long their hair was, but the fact that the ones with long hair
0: were the ones burning the damn flag, I didn't like it. I still don't. On the subject of Merle Haggard, have you explored that kind of connection from between sort of Graham Parsons and Bakersfield and, and Merle Haggard? Are you are you interested in that? sound? Uh, I mean, I know
1: you know Graham was trying to get Merle to produce his solo That's album. That's correct, and and you know Graham was very much in thrall to the Bakersfield sound. Yeah, and also Keith. Really credits Graham with teaching him the difference between the Bakersfield sound and, and, and the what they were doing song. in Nashville and yeah. the chord progressions and things like that. So Absolutely. you know, yeah. and that's what led to Wild Horses, according to legend. Absolutely,
0: you know, which yeah, Graham I mean, probably Graham... had
1: a little bit more hand in than anyone wants to admit, because well, it, it sounds almost like a Graham Parsons yeah. song more than a Stones. Well, i that,
2: that that's what the Stones did. They just stole right. from the people around right. them. And there. you
1: know, but, but, and also the Flying Burrito Brothers, really, I think feel you know, I feel did the definitive version of it, and they yeah. recorded it first obviously yeah, yeah. as well yeah. so.
0: i think rome actually did go and spend the weekend Shay haggard they just just to sort of see whether they could get along and
1: and weirdly lor was
0: fairly appalled by this by yeah. this kind of yeah and then he actually in,
1: then he wanted john phillips to produce his album i think and then that didn't happen and then he ended up with terry melcher post manson murders and they were both an absolute mess and those, <laughs> those sessions they they did record, they I did. Think, but those were apparently you know uh, liberated from the A and M archives and never been heard of since. So.
0: I think I'm right saying that Graham and John Phillips were on motorbikes, yeah, going through Bel Air and yeah. had an accident, right? I think Graham yeah, yeah. was the one who came off the worst, but so they well, they Graham,
1: Graham was the only one who came off. I mean, he right. came off his bike. He had a he had a Harley that obviously he bought because he was fairly wealthy, yes. and uh, he jerry rigged it with a coat hanger through the front end and the entire thing broke and and he you know was left in the middle of the street with i've heard i think genevieve told me blood pumping out of him and i actually think that sort of was what hastened the end of right you know it definitely hastened the end of graham's career with the flying burrito brothers because he was hopped up on pain pills for yes, a long he was, time he was mm-hmm. really he was yeah. really banged and up. became very bloated and well, well, mm. well i mean he was hopped up on pain pills and then the the burritos were going on tour for their second album the second album and he did not like flying anyway right. so i think at that point chris hillman really had had enough of him he yes. was just mm-hmm. kind of a mess and yes. That was yeah, when he was yeah. fired. So
2: Well, I'm so staying in a Los Angeles vibe, Musician nineteen ninety four, Mark Rowland interviewing Lenny Waronko, who's one of the great record men at Warner. Warner Brothers. The irony of this, this interview came out in I think it's July nineteen ninety four. It's therefore the interview is probably taped in late June, maybe early July. And within about six weeks, Wurrunker was off the label, that Mo Austin had been fired. They offered him Mo Austin's job. He didn't want anything to do with what people described as know-nothing bean counters. And he left and kind of, with Mo Austin at DreamWorks, did the whole thing all over again. This idea of creating a place where artists can make the records they want and the record company would support them. So It's a very good interview. I love this line. He says, you know there is a method behind all this lofty artistic bullshit. If you aligned yourself with that, there would be a payoff. I mean, the idea being, if you were... You gave people the time, you gave them the space that at some stage or another people start buying their records and recognise the quality.
0: Not always, but enough to just Well, that sign. was the extraordinary thing about Warner Brothers, yeah. wasn't it? Because they did sign a bunch of particularly singer-songwriters mm-hmm. who no one would have said, well, these guys are going to be big pops stars. Joanie wasn't going to be a huge pop star. Randy Newman wasn't going to be a huge pop star. But they built a kind of base there, yeah. which in turn attracted so many yeah million-selling mm. acts mm. to Burbank, including, uh, fast, fast, I mean, the, the thing I picked out was about Prince. You know, Prince comes to yeah. Warner Brothers, and Mark Rowland asks Warren in this interview about Prince, and just fascinating stuff. About he's 17 years old, and he sort of auditions for Lenny and yeah. Moe and Ross Titleman, and they're all just utterly blown away, because this kid just comes and lays down about. Seven tracks down a all the part, instruments puts down a
2: drum part. Beat the drum part in like on two the hours.
0: Yeah. And they're just like sign this guy. Uh, there's something really interesting though that I've never heard this before. Warren says that Prince sidled up to him one day and said, Lenny, don't make me into a black artist. I like the Beatles, I like Jimi Hendrix, I like it all. Mm-hmm. And Lenny says, it stunned me. So we knew he was very fixed in what he wanted to do. There was an enormous amount of talent there. We didn't know, none of us knew where he was going. Yeah. But the idea that already, at like 17, it's hard to believe, he didn't want to be presented mm. by Warners as as an R&B yeah. act.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, everything about the way, in which It's obviously that relationship fell to pieces later between Warners uh, and Prince. But, of course. But the idea that, any label would give a guy with no track record whatsoever outside some word of mouth in, in, in mm. Minneapolis total artistic control of his records from the very word go is
0: un, unheard of. Yeah, they, they did bring in this guy Tommy Vicari, who was just sort of notionally the yeah. overseeing yeah. producer but essentially it was just like, they, you know, I think Lenny and the others yeah, yeah. felt they ne- just needed a paternal hand sure. on his shoulder but essentially he was doing everything himself from the word go.
2: And then sort of four years later, George Michael gets arrested in a gentleman's lavatory in a park in Los Angeles. We're staying in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, Barbara Ellen writes a marvellously kind of catty piece about this the week after it happened. Her sort of shtick is that he was where he was because he'd never come out, that if he'd come out years before, Mm -hmm. none of these things would be an issue. And she says... And while for many in the gay community, socialising in a public lavatory would be classed as routine, for a personality like Michael, it undoubtedly is not. The most circumspect and cagey of men, he's never come across as a sexual exhibitionist. On the contrary, he has rather given the impression that he takes baths with his underpants on. Uh, that's Barbara Ellen's sort of, you know, but, but it, it's, it's an interesting piece. She's critical of him whilst also being enormously sympathetic, which is kind of quite a trick to pull off. What have you,
0: you find Well, it's a, a great good? way to end our LA themed podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> from from yeah, the lavatory the to the toilet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the only way we can really bow out from this is, is to hear uh, Elliot Roberts talking about what cocaine did to la but before we before we go out with that i'd just like to thank you chris so much for for coming and joining us. really great for for a free-ranging and and indeed very discursive conversation mainly about los angeles it's been really good to get your perspective you are virtually a californian now Uh, i'll have to come and see you in pioneer town so how have you been there certainly the color of a californian (laughs) (laughs) he is a color of a californian yeah no I'll, i'll have to Trek out to, to Joshua time. Tree Take again sometime mountain. soon. Yeah, I'd love to, love to go up the mountain with you and pay homage to the late great Ted Mark. Do, do you see which... big spiders there?
1: No, big snakes. <laughs> no, snakes don't bother me. It's the spiders. Okay, I haven't seen too many big t- I've seen a tarantula. Yes, well, that's a tarantula. So but they're actually quite oh, friendly. <laughs>
0: Friend, <laughs> come friendly so, tarantula. So, uh, so, again, so, thanks. Great, from, great. From, from both of us, it's been great talking with you. And uh, we are going to go out, Mark, with this final clip of Elliot Roberts it's
2: talking about the wonders of cocaine and what it did
0: for the, the drug uh, that, that was- no one thought was addictive. <laughs> On that happy note, see you next week. Bye. Bye. Really no
2: difference between the
3: two. Cocaine. All around my brain
0: Jenny, you said that, that cocaine did more damage to the music scene in... in I the think services. it did. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
3: I everyone it, did. So it was, so like a, it was yeah. the kind of thing where everyone was saying, wow, what a pure drug. Yes. And no one can say anything bad about it. And yeah, no one sure. was. It was the time no one knew anything. Yeah. And, it was more and no one realized that it yeah. was totally addictive, exactly. and that yeah. it ate your cells away, and your yeah. nose fell off, yeah. and your lips fell into the floor, yeah. and your teeth yeah. fell out. And you killed your firstborn and, and butchered yeah. your wife no one mentioned those things that I guess no one had taken it for a long, long period enough. of time the yeah. way or embraced it as readily as everyone of yes. that counterculture did and uh, and you were literally offered it from your accountant to your lawyer to the head of your record company yeah. and we're all going you know want to bump sure you know it was like so mainstream and yes uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of people we know were incredibly hurt by it yes I mean, without question some killed sure Uh, Some, their lives and careers were, you know, irreparably damaged and they could never get them back. Yeah.
2: Mm -hmm, Mama, come here quick. That old cocaine about to make me sick. Cocaine
3: ran all around my brain.
2: That was Elliot Roberts in conversation with Barney Hoskins in 1993, concluding this week's Rocksback
1: Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Chris Campion. His John Phillips book is in the works. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie.
2: You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.